Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The initial economic shock of COVID-19 was synchronized. The recovery will be anything but. The pandemic is causing the world's economies to diverge. The pandemic is going to leave economies less globalised, more digitised and less equal. You know, it just feels like a completely different world. It is so unique and the usual playbook doesn't apply. Firms are not going to unlearn what they learned over this period. Rather than trying to restore yesterday's economy, governments have to adapt to the changes that are taking place. We're still so far from being out of the woods. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachnashan Bogue, The Economist's finance editor. And this week, how COVID-19 is recasting the global economic order. In February, the coronavirus pandemic struck the global economy with the biggest shock since the Second World War. Whole countries locked down, world trade shuddered, consumer spending slumped and the labour market imploded as nearly 500 million full-time jobs disappeared almost overnight. In response, central banks and governments have stretched their mandates and their deficits beyond all previously imagined limits in order to avoid even deeper catastrophe. The pandemic has exceeded in economic effect what models of pandemics before this year suggested might happen. Henry Kerr is our economics editor and the author of a recent special report on the economic winners and losers of the pandemic. So the most sophisticated modelling of a pandemic before this year was based on forecasts for a Spanish flu-type pandemic. And it was thought that that might kill something in the region of 70 million people and reduce GDP by 5%. But what we've had this year is a death toll that's much lighter than that in the scheme of things. But the hit to GDP has been far greater as the hit to GDP looks more like in the region of 7% for the world economy as a whole this year, in that the IMF previously thought you'd get 3% growth and it now thinks you're going to get a contraction of 4% or more. So for comparison, in 2009, the Great Recession shrank the economy by only 0.1%. So it's really an enormous shock and it could have been worse, but for the policy interventions that we've seen. It is so unique and the usual playbook doesn't apply. Gita Gopinath is chief economist at the IMF. She told me how her team had to go back to the drawing board as the sheer scale of the shock became clear. And so even in our forecasting models, while in the past you could use historical data to gather trends and use that for forecasting, this time around it had to be a a totally forward-looking enterprise. So we were building scenarios and speaking to uh, epidemiologists and public health officials. So truly a, a crisis like no other, and we're still so far from being out of the woods. What does the recent update of the IMF's World Economic Outlook predict about how the pandemic will affect global growth? The latest data point to this continuing to be the worst since the Great Depression. We are projecting a deep recession in almost all countries 
with the exception of China, which is projected to grow this year. We have growth projected to be minus 4.4% this year and then rebounding to 5.2% next year. But if you look at almost all economies, again, with the exception of China, most of them don't return to 2019 levels even by end 2021. So this is why we describe this as a long ascent. Secondly, we're seeing uneven developments everywhere. Within countries, the manufacturing sectors are doing better than services. Across countries, many emerging and developing economies are doing a lot worse than advanced economies are. We are seeing rising inequality, rising poverty. And this is the highly uneven ascent that we also refer to. As you say, China is the great exception here, as regular Money Talks listeners may have heard in last week's episode. But can you tell us more about what's driving this divergence between richer countries and emerging and developing ones? A lot depends upon how badly you've been hit by the virus. So there are some low-income countries, an example being Vietnam, that has managed the health crisis much better than other parts of the world have. Secondly, of course, is the uh, pre-existing conditions of the economy. So how well is your healthcare system developed to deal with this kind of a pandemic? And many emerging developing economies do not have the best healthcare systems. Secondly, many have entered with already elevated levels of debt with weakness in growth. They've not had the kind of fiscal space to do the kind of spending that you've seen in advanced economies. So for instance, for the advanced economy group, additional fiscal stimulus has been around 20% of GDP, of their GDP. Uh, That number for emerging and developing economies is about 6%. And then for low-income countries, that number comes down to 2%. And then lastly, sectors matter. So if you're an economy that relies heavily on tourism, if you are a major oil exporter, then this crisis is hitting you particularly hard. When the pandemic first struck, there were predictions of wide-scale emerging market funding crisis. But that hasn't fully materialised. Why do you think they've held up better than was feared? There have been a combination of factors. Firstly, there's been you know, synchronous, large-scale, timely uh, monetary policy action around the globe. You've seen aggressive monetary easing, very large amounts of liquidity infusion, large-scale asset purchases of a kind that have not been done before. And this is true even in some emerging markets where for the first time you've seen asset purchase programs being deployed. A second is uh, the good policies of the past, which included ensuring that banks were capitalized, has really paid off. I mean, in most recessions, you usually have a drop in credit growth, but you have continued lending happening. And in many emerging and developing economies, the policies they followed in terms of also building up financial stability, inflation targeting regimes have all given them the credibility to do some unconventional policies without risking their policy frameworks. But of course, that said, we're not out of the woods. One has to be careful about building up of financial risks. And that's something that we flag in our Global Financial Stability Report. Beneath these vast and growing disparities in short-term economic prospects across countries, the pandemic is accelerating deeper, fundamental structural changes in the world economy. Henry Kerr, our economics editor, again. The pandemic is going to leave economies less globalised, more digitised and less equal. Less globalised because of the way in which supply chains have been disrupted 
this year uh, by lockdowns and a lot of firms now say they're paying a lot more attention to supply chains and their fragility. And this year has also been an opportunity for protectionist policy, uh, particularly regarding the trade in medical goods and in terms of government intervention in the economy in general, more digitized because of this sudden adoption of digital technology we've had as we've shifted to working remotely more frequently and less equal because of the skewed impact of the shock on the labor market. It's typical during recessions for low paid workers to get hit worse than higher paid professional workers. But this year really has been an extreme case of that. And it looks increasingly as if the future of cities and office work has been fundamentally shifted by this year. And that has real knock on consequences for the low paid service sector and retail workers who work in cities and will have to find new jobs as economic activity is reallocated away from cities and and more towards the suburbs. And so as that transition happens, the economy is going to be less equal. Gita Gopinath of the IMF agrees significant structural shifts are coming. I think the challenge for policymakers is that while, yes, you you do want to make sure that you are protecting jobs, that you don't end up in a situation with a large number of zombie firms that cannot survive the new economy. But that is a very tricky call to make because the decision you have to make is firms that will be viable once this pandemic is over but are not viable now. And the question is how much support can you give to these firms in the interim? So the approach that we've been pushing for is if you're a country that has a fiscal space, do not prematurely withdraw support. It's very important to make sure that there are enough jobs around when people are able to return to full-time work. Uh, And while reallocation of resources is is going to be important, it can be very disruptive. And there's a lot of loss of human capital and organizational capital, and it's not an easy transition to make. So the idea would be to progress gradually. As the recovery strengthens, you would then shift support towards allowing reallocation of resources. And what that means is that instead of providing measures that maintain jobs, you provide measures that maintain livelihoods of uh, workers so that in the transition they can still take care of themselves. You want to, in some cases, provide hiring subsidies, especially for people who are likely to be very hard hit from this uh, crisis. So you want to move towards reallocation resources. But again, you know, there are some countries that rely almost like 50% of their economy is driven by tourism. The question of how do you actually transition or then diversify away from from being a tourism-dependent economy to something that provides you a source of growth in the future is a, is a major challenge, and I don't think we have the answers yet. Specifically on this question of preserving livelihoods versus preserving jobs, what do you think of the different approaches in America and Europe? Can we tell yet which has been more successful, or is it too soon to say? I mean, I would say it's still too soon to say. And importantly, the responses we've seen is a reflection of the schemes that were in the system already before this crisis hit. So Europe has been known to use uh, uh, short-time work schemes. It worked quite well during the global financial crisis. And it's useful to deploy it because you want to keep workers and firms matched. In the U.S., on the other hand, the reliance is much more on unemployment insurance where people actually leave jobs and collect unemployment uh, claims. You know, as long as this is a crisis that doesn't require major structural transformation, then the approach of uh, preserving jobs works well. But over time, 
And since we know that there is going to be a need for structural transformation, you will start seeing a need to prevent schemes that tie workers to certain jobs, but instead to kind of encourage them to move to sectors that are growing and away from shrinking sectors. As the pandemic continues, this reallocation of jobs and resources looks increasingly likely. But while Dr Gopinath and the IMF are urging governments not to prematurely withdraw support for firms and jobs at risk, Henry Kerr points out the dangers of waiting too long to embrace the new reality. What's happened in the 21st century is that there have been big economic shocks. There's been the rise of China and its integration into the global trading system. There's been the financial crisis and all the ramifications that that had. And there's been the continued rise of big technology firms and the digitization of the economy. But those shocks have not yet led to any really fundamental change in terms of public policy or in terms of how the economy operates. And that had led, I think, to a sense that voters had lost control of economic forces, that these changes had been ignored or or not considered enough by governments. And so clearly, when you've got another enormous shock uh, that's both causing short-term pain and accelerating structural changes as well, there's a risk that the government response goes wrong again somehow, either through inaction or through taking the wrong actions. There's always a temptation, I think, for politicians to try and conjure a sense of nostalgia, to stand in the way of change, to object to disruption in the short term, because that can be politically popular, rather than trying to restore yesterday's economy. Governments have to adapt to the changes that are taking place. In the previous shocks of the 21st century, I think people have felt like those transitions were too painful. The answer to that is not to stop the changes happening at all, it's to make sure you adapt to them in a way that is more effective. Coming up, if the job market is changing for good, how can governments ease the transition? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A little over a year ago, most of the rich world was enjoying a jobs boom of extraordinary scope. Not only was work plentiful, but it was also on average getting better. In America, for example, real incomes were rising, particularly for the lowest paid, and extremely tight labour markets were expected for the foreseeable future. It's interesting to think back to that time, you know, it just feels like a completely different world. We kept emphasising that the challenge going forward was job quality, not job quantity. Now, of course, we're in a very different situation. Elizabeth Reynolds is director of MIT's Task Force on the Future of Work. There's a couple things that we know to be true. The high income inequality that we have been experiencing, really the highest in the last 80 years, has been really exacerbated by the current situation. In many cases, as my colleague David Otter and I wrote, our challenge will be that we will have too few low-wage jobs, sort of an ironic statement, but that I think will be one of the key challenges. What we do know is that those who are lucky enough to work from home and have that option are probably going to be able to weather this fairly well. 
Right now in the U.S., it's about 40% of workers are working from home. They are predominantly more highly educated workers. So I suspect in the future we'll see a hybrid model. But just that fact of working from home is in and of itself a form of automation. We start to have a ripple effect on those jobs that would support our work in the office. So whether that's the cleaning, security, maintenance of buildings, uh, food service, transportation, retail, hotel, restaurants, taxis and ride hailing, many of those jobs lost or at risk of being lost in the near future. The second dimension of this, which is kind of a double whammy for those workers as well, is that this has a geographic dimension to it. Our cities are de-densifying. We're seeing firms absolutely make shifts in their leases, not just for the near term, but for the long term, perhaps into more suburban areas, maybe into sort of tier two smaller cities as well. The third dimension is the loss of small businesses. Really, we're not capturing that accurately because a lot of small businesses don't file for bankruptcy. What that leads to is more employment concentration in larger firms. You know, by their very nature, large firms are less labor intensive. And then, of course, there's also the issues of competition as you have a concentration of large firms and what that can do for workers and for wages. There's a bigger dimension here than just the job loss, but also a sense of place, if you will, and community. We can imagine that COVID would be, in some ways, forcing more automation in firms. They've learned how to operate with fewer workers, and firms are not going to unlearn what they learned over this period, and so there will be an impact on those jobs. I think there are a number of prescriptions for moving forward to address this labor market fallout. First and foremost is around job quality. For example, unemployment insurance. We have a whole host of workers who operate in this second tier kind of labor market who don't have coverage, do not have paid leave, do not have sick leave, et cetera. And we've extended some of these benefits during the crisis and I hope we continue those because they improve job quality generally. We have an opportunity here I think to provide through a hybrid learning with online and hopefully in-person, greater investments in our workers. We're looking at the ways in which technology now is involved in every single job. There's a real possibility here for providing access in a way that we haven't had before. It sounds like a common refrain, I think, but it really is true that it is actually through innovation that we create new jobs. We can create technology that actually augments workers not just replaces them. And it's important for us to also innovate if we want to grow the economy so that we can provide a lot of these additional benefits and improve the job quality over time. So that also has to be part of the agenda going forward. Economists like Elizabeth Reynolds and her co-author, David Alter, warn that this profound reallocation of labour is going to drastically increase inequality. But at the same time, other reports, for example a recent paper from Goldman Sachs, argue forcefully that longer-term scarring of the labour market is so far surprisingly limited. Can both be true? Henry Kerr. So I think there are two sides to this coin. On the one hand, the damage to the labour market, certainly in America, is going to be less than was feared at the worst of the crisis this year. So when you had really sky-high unemployment rates, People were thinking, you know, is this going to be a worse labour market overhang than after the global financial crisis when unemployment took a long time to come down? 
Uh, in fact, this year, unemployment in America, at least, has fallen more rapidly than was expected. And so that's led people to say, well, labor market reallocation is taking place more quickly. And what Goldman Sachs was saying in the paper you refer to was that a lot of the jobless workers in America right now are in industries which will recover once there is a vaccine. And I think that's probably true. However, uh, I don't think that's necessarily inconsistent with what David Alter and Elizabeth Reynolds are saying about job losses among urban service sector workers, because while the economy will eventually recover from the shock, that doesn't mean you're not going to have these structural changes as economic activity on the margin moves away from cities. And I think the evidence that you will have that structural change is pretty strong. So according to Nick Bloom, who's an economist at Stanford University, he and his co-authors predict that a third or more of all job losses this year will be permanent. So I still think you could have a painful reallocation happening, even if the top line macro numbers don't look quite as bad as was feared earlier this year. What do you think governments should prioritise when it comes to averting and mitigating the really worst predictions and trying to channel some of this disruption towards progress? Well, there are some obvious things that can happen as a result of this year that would have been harder beforehand. So one of the things that looks increasingly possible is the globalisation of digital labour markets. If people are working remotely, it becomes a lot easier for people to work across borders and trade digital services across borders. So you can think of India's IT services for instance. But there's, I think, in the global economy, a lot of potential for more of those sort of cross-border digital services trade liberalisations. Another thing is that we've seen innovation this year in terms of government policy towards supporting household incomes. So I don't think anyone really could have imagined the extent to which governments have supported household incomes this year. And I think the principle that households should be supported when they're affected by shocks that are completely beyond their control is not one that's going to go away. And it wouldn't surprise me if the next time a more regular recession comes along, the support for household income is much greater and perhaps more automated than it's been in the past. Elizabeth Reynolds emphasised investing in reskilling and improving job quality to ease this transition. Do you see a role for governments in not just protecting livelihoods, but actively encouraging the creation of new jobs and transforming the labour force? One of the things we learnt in the last economic cycle was just how good a tight labour market can be in terms of wage gains at the bottom of the income distribution. So in America, the lowest paid earners were getting pay rises of in the region of 4 to 5% in 2019 and, and real median household income went up a lot. But also in terms of bringing people back into the labour force who had left, in terms of getting firms to invest in training for their workers. And so I think governments have a real role in ensuring that those labour market conditions come back as soon as possible. And that's about making sure that you get your aggregate demand policy right and you stimulate the economy sufficiently that the market does its job in terms of creating those conditions that are really favourable to workers. During the 2010s, I think there was a mistake in terms of the premature tightening of fiscal policy in many countries and also in some places, monetary policy. And I think that should be avoided. But it's also true that governments got to think more about what a digital economy means. 
Currently in the labour market, there's a massive premium on technological skills. The fact that that's true is something of an indictment of modern education. So governments need to keep the digital economy competitive. They need to keep the labour market hot and they need to do deep thinking about the relationship between the state and the individual and the state and the worker and the firm and the worker coming out of this crisis. With so much resting on the policy response in coming months, Henry, will the politics allow governments to take on this challenge? So there's a pessimistic and an optimistic story you can tell here. The pessimistic story is that I think politics in a lot of countries seems quite divided and somewhat frozen and not as capable of fundamental reform as it previously was. There's a risk, I think, if the political system doesn't deliver the appropriate change in response to shocks, that what happens is you get a populist backlash. The optimistic story is that policy changed rapidly pretty quickly this year. Governments proved to be a bit more nimble than perhaps we thought they could be. And I think they're aware of the challenges, certainly on the economic cycle. Politicians aren't having any trouble stimulating the economy at the moment. So this is the challenge that's facing democratic governments around the world. But if they rise to it, then 2020 could be the start of an era in which populism wobbles while economic policymaking escapes from a rut. Henry Kerr, thank you. Thanks, Rajna. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. I really recommend reading Henry's special report on the deep transitions underway in the global economy on economist.com. As well as what we've talked about here, it has chapters on the consequences for trade, competition and emerging markets. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special link for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. While you're with us, please take a moment to give us a rating or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It will help us immensely. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. I'm Rachna Schanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.